Um, good morning again. This is Ashley Washington from the Office of Chief of Public Affairs Online and Social Media Division. Um, and thank you for joining us for our Bloggers Roundtable. This morning we have with us Ms. Kathy Helmick. Um, she's the Deputy Director for TBI at the Defense Centers of Excellence for Psychological Health and Traumatic Brain Injury. And she will be discussing um, DOD programs and initiatives designed to assist service members and veterans diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries or TBI. Um, she will be discussing the latest in diagnosis, evaluations, and research surrounding TBI. Um, housekeeping items before we begin, if you would please um, keep your phones on mute while um, someone's asking a question, that would be greatly appreciated to keep the background noise down. And once you ask your question, please state your name and who you're affiliated with or your blog or you're just calling in to learn more about what's going on. Um, Ms. Helmick, we're actually going to begin with you. If you have any opening statements you would like to make. Sure. Thank you, Ashley. Um, hi. Good morning, everybody. This is Kathy Helmick calling from the Defense Centers of Excellence. Um, we are five days away from uh, the close of Brain Injury Awareness Month, which was March uh, 2011. And every year, uh, March gives us an opportunity to raise awareness and support for service members, veterans, and their families whose lives are affected by traumatic brain injury. Um, the Defense Department has made significant advancements in TBI management during the past several years, and I hope we have an opportunity to talk about some of these. Um, some recent advancements have been the signing of a directive-type memorandum, which was a policy that was put into place back in June um, that affects in-theater care for concussion. In addition, we've made significant advancements and piloted some programs looking at cognitive rehabilitation in mild traumatic brain injury, as well as being part of a comprehensive rehabilitation strategy for those with more severe brain injuries. Um, traumatic brain injury really fits the full continuum from somebody that has a mild brain injury, otherwise known as concussion, and we use those terms interchangeably, to um, people that sustain moderate severe, or even penetrating brain injury. So traumatic, traumatic brain injury can be lumped, if you will, into four different buckets, mild, moderate, severe, and penetrating. And then, of course, we have a full continuum of care that we offer patients from all the way from prevention and trying to stop the brain injury from happening in the first place all the way through acute assessment and, and, and treatment into uh, reintegration back into their communities. Some other hot topics that we've been working on of late is we have a very large research portfolio, and I hope we get an opportunity to discuss some of the new treatments that we have on our radar screen, as well as some uh, objective markers looking at diagnosing mild traumatic brain injury from a very objective, uh, in a very objective fashion. Um, finally, we've recently released a toolkit that uh, really concentrates on um, how to assess and treat people that have mild TBI, but also pain or post-traumatic stress disorder or perhaps depression or substance use disorder. We call it the co-occurring toolkit, and we've just released this for clinicians in the military health system to help them navigate some of the clinical challenges they're finding when service members return from deployment and have multiple uh, clinical issues going on, including their concussion and subsequent uh, subsequent for that. Um, perhaps we'll have an opportunity to talk about some family and children resources that are now available to help support families and children uh, when their loved one has sustained a, a traumatic brain injury, whether it's concussion or all the way to the severe and penetrating brain injuries. 
So that is really uh, just some opening comments. I wanted to throw out some hot topics that we've been working on and look forward to your questions. Over. Thank you so much, ma'am. And with no further ado, we'll begin our questions. Um, we have J.D. on the line. Would you like to begin with asking your first question? Uh, I don't have anything right now. Oh, okay, not a problem. Um, we have our Miss um, Deborah Gilbertson. You are your team from um, San Antonio. Would you like to begin by asking the question? So we just look forward to hearing more about the in-theater um, care for concussion policy and the co-occurring toolkit. Okay. Someone, would you like to begin by touching some bases with that? Sure. Mm -hmm. So the in-theater policy, and in the Department of Defense we call that a DTM. It stands for Directive Type Memorandum. And the number on this policy is 09-033. And this policy was signed into effect uh, the 21st of June by the, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Mr. Lynn, William Lynn. And this outlines at all levels from the chiefs, from the secretaries of each of the services, including the Army, as well as the joint staff, um, the, all the COCOMs, the Central Command, and all the COCOMs around the, the world, um, a definitive way, a prescriptive way by which all those who are involved in a potentially concussive event are evaluated to see if they have sustained a concussion. The policy outlines specific events that we consider could be high likelihood that somebody could have sustained a concussion, and some of those events include being very close to a blast or explosion, um, being in a vehicle that's uh, um, impacted by an explosion, um, uh, having any direct blow to your head, and sometimes that can be from sports activities um, that may happen in theater or from training exercises or various other um, uh, issues, having a fall uh, while you're in theater. And then also command directed. If your commander thinks that something's different and just not right about you, uh, you can enter into this policy and, and be needed to uh, uh, require a, a medical evaluation. So any of those potentially concussive events will lead to a medical evaluation by a medic or a corpsman in which they go through utilizing a tool called the MACE, the Military Acute Concussion Evaluation, um, by which uh, a medic or corpsman can go through certain steps to evaluate you to see if, you, if they believe you've sustained a concussion. And the whole tenet behind this, the objective behind this, is to detect concussion earlier. The previous ways that we've done business is that somebody would be involved in an event in theater and then wait until they have symptoms or until those symptoms got bad enough, and then they would seek out medical assets for evaluation. This whole policy um, morphs that into, instead of a symptom-based approach, it's an incident-based approach. So if this happens to you, an event, then you must go and seek care. So it really puts more of the impetus not on the person to self-present, uh, but rather they go in and see medical. Um, it's mandatory. It's like, uh, you know, it's like uh, CPR or it, it's a mandatory thing, just like they get their vehicles checked out after there's been an explosion. This is on the list to do as well, which is to go get checked out and see if you've had a concussion. Now, the benefits to that include that we can pick concussion up quicker. And, and just as important it is to say, yes, you've had a concussion, and you most likely will get better very quickly, and we want to rest you and make sure that you don't have another concussion, because that could be bad for your brain. As well as we want to do the early treatment, we also want to tell people that we don't think they had a concussion. 
person. And we, we know that that's very important as well, to give the confidence in the person that, that just uh, had an explosion go off and they've been checked out, um, just like you can say, nope, you haven't broken any bones, we can say, nope, you haven't had any concussion. Um, so that is also reassuring to the service member um, that they are good to go, if you will, and can resume uh, mission and full, full, uh, return to full duty. So that's the DTM. Um, do you want me to stop there and take any questions or go and talk about the toolkit? Oh, ma'am, you can be continuing to talk about the toolkit. Okay. As was mentioned. Sure. So the toolkit is a, uh, an actual clinical provider guide. Um, it's an e-copy. You can get it online or you can, um, it's a hard copy and it's in a spiral bound book. Um, it's about 100 pages. And it is, it is a reference tool for clinicians, for providers, physician assistants, um, primary care doctors, uh, nurse practitioners who take care of um, uh, service members who come back that have not just traumatic brain injury but have also sleep issues, um, mood issues, post-traumatic stress, um, depression, um, maybe have substance use disorder. And so what we did is we took six clinical guidelines and we intermeshed them, if you will, so that if somebody did have PTSD and depression and concussion, um, it will outline what medications you wouldn't want to use, that maybe if you just had PTSD, it would be the first choice to treat somebody using this medication. But because they have pain and concussion, you don't want to use that. So it really does help navigate for the clinician, um, not just medications, I just use that as an example, but treatment paradigms that will work when somebody is not just with one diagnosis but have complexities because they have lots of diagnoses. And this is actually something we're very proud of in the department because um, it doesn't exist in the civilian sector. And I use this analogy a lot when I'm talking about it is that if you go in or you have a loved one that has diabetes and high blood pressure and high lipids, your doctor will take care of you depending on what the diabetes literature tells you to do and what the, hyper, um, the, the high lipids literature tells you to do in terms of evidence-based practice. And then they'll, they'll follow an algorithm for what you should do for high blood pressure. But it doesn't exist in medicine yet where we actually take comorbid, you know, co-occurring multiple, more than one, and combine them so that we make sure that we're giving evidence-based care, but that it, is, it takes into account multiple conditions that, a, that um, a patient or a service member may have. This tool is available, I'll, I'll refer you to the DISPIC website if you'd like to take a glimpse at it um, on eCopy, and that's www.dvbic, Defense Veterans Brain Injury Center, dvbic.org. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, we have a question from uh, Charlie from Soldiers Angels. Hello? Okay, um, Dale from Military Avenue, do you have a question? Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking your time this morning, uh, Ms. Helmick. Um, my question is about family resources and what we're What's the latest and greatest for what we can do for families that have somebody in the family with injured? That's a 
wonderful question. We actually, this is a, has been an identified need for many years, not just in the Department of Defense, but also in the, in the uh, civilian world, is how do we really best support families? Um, I do want to mention, when we talk about traumatic brain injury, it's almost two different populations, if you will. And uh, let me start with the more severe brain injuries. And these are the people that end up in, usually are in coma for a little while. They're in intensive care units. Um, you know, a very prime example uh, that's recently been in the press is um, Representative Giffords um, requiring acute care and then being transferred to a rehabilitation hospital and still, uh, I believe, right now, uh, with an injury in January and now it's April, requiring um, um, interventions and, and rehabilitation services. So let's talk about that population first because that, that it describes what we see on the battlefield with acute life-saving interventions, many times neurosurgery to take out some type of brain lesion and then they come back to the states and require um, rehabilitation, many times um, going to the VA for services uh, to help with comprehensive uh, treatments. And those, those families that navigate that kind of journey, um, uh, Congress actually mandated in 2008 the development of a family, family caregiver curricula. And I just want to be very sure that I, that I um, uh, make, make um, um, pronouncement or, or give attention to the fact that this is a tool that really is for moderate, severe, and penetrating brain injury. And in the second, we'll talk about the concussed patients. But there's very few people that have concussion that require caregivers. So I, I want to message this correctly and make sure that we're talking about these different populations within the rubric um, of traumatic brain injury. So looking at the severe and penetrating brain population, um, we have a family caregiver curricula that navigates the journey for family members as they go through trying to assist their loved one with um, care issues, like uh, basic um, needs and, and sometimes, you know, bathing and activities of daily living is what we call them, um, as well as help to navigate for the, uh, the family member um, the supportive realm. Why did this happen to my loved one? How do I deal with this? Um, how do I, uh, you know, pay the bills and do all these things that I, I, I didn't even know about before the injury event? And, and really the curricula, which is six modules, even assists um, in trying to find meaning of caregiving. How can I make this a meaningful experience for both myself and the person that I'm caregiving for? So it's, it's a real, really rich resource um, that was put together by a 14-member White House-appointed panel back in 2008. And you can find that as well. There's a link on the DIFBIC site that I just gave you uh, for the toolkit um, that will show you those modules. And, and it, they've just been released about a year, so we don't have a lot of feedback yet, although we're in the process of getting program effectiveness feedback on what families uh, uh, think of these um, modules and if they assisted them in navigating the journey after severe and penetrating brain injury. Now, going to... Um, the uh, concussed patient population, um, there are some, some recently um, developed children's books 
that help uh, let a, ch a, a, um, a child understand a little bit more about some of the issues that a concussed patient may face, like sleep, uh, like uh, memory disturbances and headache and, and just uh, problems remembering things. Um, and so a couple of those books have been published recently. Um, uh, one's called um, Our Daddy is Invincible. I have it here next to me in my office. Um, but that, this is a new frontier because normally we, we've been looking at um, spouse and significant other support um, initiatives. And this is the first time that um, there's recently been some publications that are aimed at children, which has uh, historically been a forgotten group um, when people are navigating a TBI journey. So there are children's resources. Um, DECO also has an outreach call center um, that, well, you can get to it both by email and by phone number. And it's a 24-7 um, service in which healthcare consultants answer the phone and take calls from people that have had traumatic brain injury issues and can divert them to uh, certain resources where appropriate, like Military One Source or, you know, the Army, uh, the specific service um, uh, programs that are available to help support families when they come back. So that's just a, a sampling, if you will, of um, some important initiatives to both support families, including children. Are, are these available on, uh, online so Guard and Reserve members that are not in a post or base can find them? Yes. And the, the DivBig site is the best one-stop shop. One, the other thing we were hearing about is this option overload from families. They don't know where to go. So traumatic brain injury resources through the Department of Defense, even if DECO has uh, produced them or whatever, like the toolkit I mentioned, we have uh, earnestly tried to keep them on one website. So the dvbic.org, you can go for providers, you can go for family members, you can go for line commanders. There's different stakeholder groups, if you will, that are outlined in the website. But yes, you can get them online. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Chuck Sim from America's North Shore Journal. Do you have a question? Yeah. Uh, thank you for speaking with us. Um, the last time that we talked, one of the things that we talked about were uh, some changes in uh, equipment in the field that uh, may be useful in reducing the uh, incidence of TBI. Is there anything new in, in that area? Um, everything is continuing on with helmet design to, to improve helmet design, and we're working with our NATO allies very strongly in that arena, and especially the Canadians. Um, but I, I, what I would say is new starting this month is that we are piloting some sensors in a group. Um, it, it's the second generation, if you will, of helmet sensors so that we can better understand blast dosimetry and understand just like if you work in a hospital and you carry your dosimetry pin to let you know how much exposure you have as you uh, uh, conduct x-rays on people, we're trying to understand um, what the threshold of blast exposure is and how much is too much and what happens to you when you get exposed to, to a certain amount of blast and the pressure. Um, so the, there was a whole generation one, if you will, that, that went out to the field and um, it, was, it, it was a type of look to find out what was reasonable and we got a lot of readings that weren't reasonable, like somebody tying their shoe or, uh, you know, the helmet falling off and 
and would cause all these firings. So we, we've done a lot of work in the last year to improve those helmet sensors to capture what we think will be captured. Um, so helmet sensor activity is, is firing up again, if you will, no, no pun intended, um, and we are trialing those second generation sensors with a group this month. How, how many uh, individuals are, are involved with um, that? Um, thousands. Um, so you've got thousands of sensor helmets that are deployed. Correct. Um, okay. Uh, and just, if I'm wearing one of those, what do I do? Do I turn it in once a day to have the readings taken off it, or how does that, how does that not screw up the soldier's day? Yeah, I, I think they're pretty innocuous. I, I can't, meaning they're hidden inside the helmet and you wouldn't even know you're wearing one. Um, I cannot tell you, uh, I do not know um, off, the top, uh, off the top of my head, again, no pun intended, um, when they plan to recalibrate those, like you said, is it the end of a mission or is it the end of the month or is it the end of the tour? Um, we could probably get that information of specifics for you, but, but I do not, I can't answer that for you right now on the phone. I just wondered how much more it added to the to the individual soldiers' um, day with all. All right, thank you. I, we're led to believe very little, uh, very small, in, uh, if any, inconvenience is is what I recall from briefings about this. But any other particulars, I'd have to get that for you later. All right, thank you. Thank you. And Bob Brewer from GovExec, did you have a question? Hello? 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 Did Hi. you say John Sisson? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Bob Ruin, are you on the line? Okay, Ms. Greta Perry, did you have a question? I think we have some phone issues here. Um, John Sisson? This is John Sisson in Tallahassee. Yes. Uh, I'm with the, my own blog site, uh, how you got in touch with, with me. Uh, I've had a, uh, uh, an accident tw 20 years ago, and uh, I've had to learn a lot about getting medical care, and I've had 10 uh, neuropsych tests, and, and, and Dr. Dr. Jonathan Pincus of the VA is, is, my, is a primary doctor of mine. He's terrific. Did you want more information? Oh, no, just if you had any questions for Ms. Helmick regarding um, the conversation. Well, I just, I think what what she's doing and what you all are doing is, is laudable is exactly what needs to be done. There seems to be a lack of protocol. We start talking about evidence-based medicine and so on, and it's very complicated uh, to make, the, make those judgments and, 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 and administer treatment. It needs to be done so you're in the right place. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Um, Christina, did you have a question? 
Yeah, hi, I did. This is Christy Kalsen. I'm an Army wife and military family advocate. Um, I, I appreciate the focus that, that particularly DECO is, is really focusing on families in terms of um, educating the caregivers. Uh, I, I am concerned and, and the challenges that I hear a lot from my girlfriends who are caregivers with TBI and often also with PTSD is that the curriculum um, and the training that's developed or offered to the actual caregivers or the providers in the medical and the cadre or whoever is um, that face-to-face -face contact with the uh, sol soldier or, or service member is often lacking. So while it's terrific, the toolkit for, um, for family members um, is a great step forward. I'm wondering with the toolkit that, that was developed that you referenced with the six clinical guidelines, do those include guidelines about how to integrate the families effectively into the, the patient care and also the mental health of military families, um, particularly caregivers, is, is seeming to be a gap here. There was a study that just came out um, that the recent research has shown the strongest predictor of emotional distress in TBI patients is life satisfaction with their caregivers. So I'm wondering how we are tackling the actual mental health of the caregiver um, in, you know, whether, whether we have um, protocols behind that or, or what's happening. Well, Christy, thank you for your question. It is an area that uh, needs significant development. Many opportunities to both learn from the cohesive experience of those that, that go through this journey now in the context of this war that we're in with technological advances and, and different warfare. Um, I will mention that one of the areas that uh, is ripe um, for um, teaching and uh, bi-directional teaching, meaning that um, teaching how to navigate this and what this means and, and supportive measures for families, as well as learning from families what is supportive and what they're going through in, in uncharted terrain. Because frankly, we don't have a lot of literature to help um, make this empirically based like we do with our medical treatments um, that are provided. And one avenue that we've tried to establish, it's very, it's very new, um, is a community of interest within our case manager community. And so looking at traumatic brain injury case managers throughout the military health system, bringing them together and leveraging what resources are available to help support families, and then also using that forum, and it's a listserv type forum. It's a newsletter that goes out. It's a listserv. It's creating uh, a common community, if you will, um, where um, different uh, anecdotes can be shared, um, resources that have been effective. Um, one of our issues is that since 2000. With the advent of the Walter Reed piece and then the subsequent buildup of DECO and many other um, possible solutions to help um, with um, uh, wounded, will, ill, and injured service member resources and, and uh, best evidence care is the option overload. Lots of programs, how do you know they're good, how do you know they're effective, um, and, and who do they target? Has there been clear mission? This is what we're going to, going to do for, for whom. Yes, ma'am. Okay. 
Um, so I, I don't know if I've comprehensively answered your question. In the toolkit, there are some family interventions and um, uh, uh, areas to, to really help support the family as they're also going through these multiple comorbid conditions. Um, but I think what's lacking the most is a mechanism by which we can hear from families and import um, bi-directionally into these programs. And we also don't have a lot of family research that helps us navigate this. Um, the two recent IOM reports looking at readjustment needs of family members and services, that, that's a start. I mean, that, that was a, a, a dive. I don't know, you know how comprehensive of a dive in terms of solutions to all these, but I do think that there's an opportunity um, to increase the bi-directional relationships, not being talked at, but rather learning more from families and, that are going through these experiences. The IOM report that you refer to stands for what? The, the, I'm sorry, the Institute of Medicine um, put a report out. It was a phase one report. I, I'm trying to think of what month it came out. Um, it's called, the, if you Google, the readjustment needs of service members and families after deployment in OAF-OEF. And I want to say it's been probably about uh, six months out, 2010. You know, I think the bi-directional um, uh, focus that you're, that you're, that you're mentioned is, is really important because I have to tell you, as a family member myself, it is information overload, and, and that's even before, you know, you become a caregiver, just that when you're, you know, a wife down on the line. Um, I think, you know, as a suggestion, one of the things that people might want to look at, there are a lot of caregivers um, blogging out there, and connecting with those caregivers via their blogs um, and creating that culture of trust because everybody's had growing pains in the, in the past several years from Walter Reed to DECO itself. And so I think that we have to really look at reestablishing that culture of trust um, because there is, there is some problems with that. And I think just when we need people to plug in to these kinds of programs and services that DECO provides, um, some of them have started to turn away because they've been let down before. The communication hasn't been what it should be. So I would encourage DECO to... Uh, to tap in directly to those Facebook pages and to those blogs, and you will get some honest feedback. Um, they, they don't have a problem, uh, particularly once their husbands are out, um, telling it like it is. So that would just be one, one of my recommendations. Well, thank you for that feedback, and we'll definitely take that earnestly um, and, and, and really try to improve our messaging and our outreach efforts. One of the refocuses of DECO has been to really create a, a, the niche for PH and TBI as opposed to kind of all things all over and all the redeployment and, and everybody. Um, so we, we, we have really refocused our niche in the last little bit under our new director to try to um, to focus on the, well, I can only speak for the traumatic brain injury pieces, but as the organization, to try to focus on psychological health, both resiliency and then PTSD and substance use disorder, depression, and some defined um, psychological health issues, um, as well as traumatic brain injury. So uh, we, we certainly know, um, feel this sense of urgency to, to do better, and I appreciate your, your candor on the uh, culture of trust that needs to be reestablished. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we have a question now from T. Christian. Yes, hi. 
I wanted to go back to the issue of the helmet sensors. I wanted to find out a little bit more about the results of that first-generation study you mentioned, Kathy, and give us a little more color on, on what happened with that study. Sure. So, so round one, if you will, of generation one was really focused on feasibility, understanding whether these were um, ad adaptable in an austere environment, um, whether service members were going to be significantly inconvenienced as the other person uh, brought out, and really what they were going to capture. It was, uh, you know, it was like a... I don't. I can't think of an analogy. I'm usually good at those, but um, it was to see if it was a feasibility and, um, and and likelihood of capturing what we wanted it to capture. And Generation One showed us that it wasn't capturing what we wanted it to capture. Um, it was uh, not a huge inconvenience to the service member, if if little at all. Um, and yes, you can do this in an austere environment. So it answered some key questions for us that helped in the development of the Generation Two. Um, so. So it, it certainly lessons learned, um, and we couldn't get to two without one, but we're really ready and set to start learning as much as we can about blastosymmetry and exposure, and um, um, hopefully the, the second generation version two, if you will, is going to satisfy that. It, it, it's brand new now, generation two, so too, too early to tell, but those are the kind of things we learned from generation one. And, and a quick follow-up there. I, I'm not sure I quite track what you were saying about um, tying shoes or falling off the helmet? Would the, would the sensor show a concussion? Too, too, it was too sensitive to showing concussions? Is that essentially what you were saying? You were getting a lot of false positives? Actually, these helmet sensors do not show concussion at all. That should oh. be completely deconflicted. The helmet sensors would show um, blast activity. It would be able to show um, pressures and, and um, activity through waveforms and way above my physics-minded level. I mean, I'd have to give you an expert on, on exactly what the um, parameters and the graphs showed. But all I mean is that, it, it, and, and I do want to make sure that that point is, is well taken, is that the helmet sensors do not directly link to concussion. Maybe through maturation, when we understand the dosimetry levels better, we can understand the thresholds by which people would be susceptible con to concussion or actually have brain, maybe brain tissue damage. But we're nowhere near there right now. Right now, it's just about feasibility of trying to capture, um, my analogy was, just like in an x-ray room, how much, um, if, you, if you're 50 meters from a blast or 200 meters from a blast, will anything show up on these sensors to know that they got inside your helmet, i.e. close to your skull, and would be able to start to provide some threshold information for us? Because one of the things we haven't done well is define exposure versus injury event. Um, event, exposure, injury. And what do those three different terms mean as it relates to the battlefield? But so what they were picking up then, the Generation 1 was picking up, was uh, it appeared as though perhaps they had picked up a blast um, event, but actually they had picked up something like a helmet falling on the ground or something right, else. Right, something innocuous, something that was not blast-related. So there was aberrant readings that weren't picking up actual blast um, forces, if you will. But some other activity, and I just said tying a shoe. I mean, I, I don't know if it was that or not. Please don't quote me on that. It was uh, some other event. And the next, the next generation begins this month. Yes, sir. Thank you. 
think we had some back and forth callers on the line. Are there anyone? Is there anyone else who just recently called in who would like to ask a question? Please state your name. Well, I on the uh, at the beginning, Brian Jordan, Military.com. Okay. I wonder, looking forward, what are the uh, most promising therapies or treatments for us, especially the most severe TBI? Wow. Um, well, we, we're faced with that same challenge that the civilian sector is looking at neuroprotection. Um, what we do understand, especially in severe TBI, is that there are numerous different cascades of events that are occurring, both at the oxygen level, dealing with blood vessels, dealing with different um, uh, excitatory amino acids. I don't, I don't want to go down too much of a, of a, a chain that way, um, but we believe that there's numerous metabolic activities that are happening after severe brain injury. And much of our research has been to try to thwart all of it, one pill and take care of every, every pathway. And so now we're trying to specifically look at one pathway and one mitigating force, if you will. We haven't had a lot of success in severe TBI neuroprotection, um, but some of, the, um, some of the trials now are looking at specific um, medications or even endogenous, uh, um, uh, what we make ourselves, uh, for example, progesterone, to see whether or not some of these, um, uh, these pharmaceuticals will thwart a certain cascade of events. So we've got some medications that we're trialing now in the severe TBI realm, um, and that's really for the acute phase in the first eight hours after injury, perhaps. Um, in terms of treatments on the kind of further end down the line, we're critically looking at cognitive rehabilitation, um, which is, has been routinely part of a comprehensive rehabilitation package in the more severe brain injuries. So when you have a severe TBI or a penetrating brain injury, um, you undergo numerous activities, which include physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy. Speech therapists and occupational therapists are the prime therapy realm, if you will, that give cognitive rehabilitation. So we're looking at other strategies as well in the severe TBI uh, realm to try to enhance rehabilitation, enriched environments, lots of stimulation. Um, uh, we're studying cognitive reserve. So if I were to do a test, how much brain, uh, we, we have neuroimaging techniques now. Um, again, I'm, I'm not trying to get too technical here with my terms, but um, we have ways through functional MRI, fMRI, that allow us to know how much, um, where the brain is working in terms of the circuitry to do certain tasks. So the field of neurosciences is just, I mean, it's, it's blossoming throughout many venues. You've heard me describe neuroimaging. We're also looking at biomarkers and blood and what, what we can pick up from the blood that may help us in the future to both diagnose of traumatic brain injury, as well as being able to see if there's recovery. Sort of like when you go into the hospital for a heart attack and they check your enzymes, and as those enzymes start, they elevate, yes, you've ruled in for a heart attack, and as they get uh, improved, that that muscle damage is diminishing. So we're hoping for similar paradigms in traumatic brain injury as well. Um, for the mild concussed patient, we really need to develop some strategies for treatment. It's, it's where we're nil. Um, right now, resting and ensuring that there's not a subsequent brain injury while somebody is still having neurochemical changes from their concussion and also having symptoms as representative of symptoms is really important. 
but we certainly don't have any magic pill or any type of uh, significant um, in concussion right now. Thank you. Thank you. Were there any other um, additional callers on the line that haven't asked a question yet that would like to ask? Okay, we can go back down the line. Um, if T. Christian is still on the line, did you have an additional question you'd like to ask? Uh, no, I'm, I'm fine. Thank you. Okay. Um, Brian, did you have an additional question? I am good. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, Christy, did you have an additional question you'd like to ask? Yeah, just to follow up on the um, on the training uh, being offered just kind of throughout the medical community, um, I, I went over to USIS the other day to talk to you, uh, training them at the uh, pre-med level and, and incorporating basically just family wellness, not necessarily to do with TBI or PTSD. But I'm wondering, is that something that, that we can partner with DECO in, in bringing in some of that what little research there is around military family mental health as it, as it um, pertains to caregivers and, and trying to get this in almost in the pre-commissioning phase, if you will, so that these both these line leaders, medical and otherwise, are more prepared for uh, what they're going to face, particularly as these effects have been cumulative and as these young officers and NCOs come into the military in the next several years, they're going to be dealing with with some of this stuff, not just from the soldier point of view, but also the family point of view. So I'm wondering if, if that's something that we can tap into with DECO and, and, and getting the information and the best practices that you all have um, worked so hard to, to come up with and actually integrating them more effectively into the line, whether that's medical or actual combat arms. Absolutely. And we would welcome that opportunity. The, we have a directorate here that's called education. It's one of six directorates at DECO. And I will give you, uh, we can get contact later, contact information later, but the person that heads that up is, his name is Carlton Drew, D-R-E-W, Drew. And he is responsible for the outreach in curriculum development for both psychological health and traumatic brain injury um, through the National Defense University, through USIS, through academic partners, through um, uh, commander's courses. Um, that has been one of our barriers. As you well know, the medical in line, you know, not necessarily are always in the same culture and the same circles, if you will. So trying to penetrate um, the line, I mean, we've got a large stakeholder group for education, from families to patients to line commanders to um, medical assets and lack of indoctrination in our schools related to traumatic brain injury curricula and, and as well as uh, psychological health and mental health um, indices. So getting some of this stuff into a 15-week semester is crucial for this, the grooming of future leaders and future providers in the field. Um, when the DTM came out that I addressed early in this, in this bloggers roundtable, um, we, we were challenged with how do we get those that are in theater right now that will be directly affected from this new policy, number one stakeholder group, and then number two is how do we get people that are about to deploy, getting ready to push out, and they're packed full of all their requirements before they go into theater, and then number three, how do we backstep it to those that are being trained up in our medical programs, but not just medical, but our line programs too, and get it part of the indoctrine uh, curriculum. So these are huge challenges um, because it is a wide sphere, 
and we need to make sure that we, um, you know, hit all those realms. Not, it's not just one simple push a button and it goes out by, by any means. So we would absolutely welcome that opportunity to um, inculcate the education throughout. Uh, and the training, the education directorate here at DECO would be the most uh, um, appropriate venue for that to occur. Okay, we can talk more uh, offline about that. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Um, Chuck, if you're still on the line, did you have an additional question? Yes, I, I do. Um, Kathy, um, obviously comorbid conditions are made worse uh, with a TBI. Has there been any study as to whether uh, the preexistence of a, of, a, of a condition like alcoholism or drug abuse makes someone more susceptible to a TBI? There is a study that has looked at um, the correlation of substance use, and this isn't just even, we have a study in the military environment, um, but we also have studies in the civilian sector that, that have suggested that um, alcohol use makes one susceptible to traumatic brain injury because of the mechanisms by which you have traumatic brain injury, which include falls or violence, assaults, gunshot wounds, um, motor vehicle crashes. Um, so there is definitely corollaries there. Um, this is a whole realm uh, in terms of looking at other sources that, that can be contributing factors to the development of traumatic brain injury. Um, very much untapped when you start looking at genetics and ge uh, protonomics and, and all the new frontier of looking at how your genetic makeup can even um, uh, predispose you to either risk-taking behavior or um, uh, the sustaining a traumatic brain injury. We're also very interested to look at the role of resiliency. We talk about resiliency a lot in mental health spheres in terms of, um, you know, how far can you bend without breaking when you look at mental health uh, conditions. Um, for traumatic brain injury, there is very little research that shows um, your level of resiliency before you incur brain injury and how that will really impact. We know family support has a lot to do with uh, eventual recovery after traumatic brain injury, but we don't really understand a lot about cognitive resiliency. Like if you did Sudoku every day and then you had a brain injury, would you be more apt to recovery, recovery from a cognitive perspective because of that pre resiliency status. So um, a lot of unanswered questions related to that, but this substance, substance use, um, there is strong correlation, both in military uh, uh, populations as well as civilian. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Dale, if you're still online, did you have an additional question? I am, um, but no, I, I'm done. Thank you very much. All right. And were there any other questions? Ashley, could I also um, uh, redirect um, T. Christian Miller to uh, Judith Evans, our PAO over here at DECO, for some follow-up about helmet sensors and direct up to uh, MRMC, the Medical Research and Material Command at Fort Detrick? Uh, yeah, sure. I was planning on that. Okay, got it. <laughs> Deborah Gilbertson's team has three questions. I'm sorry? Deborah Gilbertson's team has three questions. Oh, yes. Go ahead. Okay. First question is, uh, could you comment uh, a little more on the diagnostic tests for TBI? Question two is, um, are there any policies uh, on the use of hemostatic agents in multi-trauma patients who also have head injuries? And the third question is, are there any recommendations regarding neuroprotective agents used in theater? 
Wow. All right. <laughs> Let's see. I'm making my paycheck today. <laughs> Number one, diagnostic test. Let me take that one first. Um, for, we talked in the very beginning about the four buckets of traumatic brain injury, mild, moderate, severe, and penetrating. For moderate, severe, and penetrating, our diagnostics are, are rather good. Um, they include the Glasgow Coma Scale score, because you're, you're evaluating somebody that most likely is in a coma, and neuroimaging. And you do an MRI or a CT scan, and you usually find something, a lesion or diffuse swelling or blood or um, so something. And that's pretty characteristic. Obviously, there's been an injury and there's blood up there. Where we really struggle is in the mild concussive realm where many times the brain scans are negative and a Glasgow Coma Scale score is 15, meaning they talk to you, they know where they are, they know who they are, they can follow some simple commands for you. So the Glasgow Coma Scale score is really not a, a very sensitive test in the mild uh, concussed place. So this is where we start looking at more objective tests. Um, we do get a good history and physical. We ask people what they recall. And any um, break in the, um, the sequence of events, if you will, if there's any memory impairment or alteration in mental status, that's indicative of somebody that's had a concussion. It doesn't necessarily mean have to be loss of consciousness, but it does entail a clinical evaluation, a report, um, a listening to your, to your patient and, and, and making some uh, clinical judgments. What we'd rather have in addition to the history and physical exam is an objective test. And this is what I was alluding to related to diagnostic markers. A couple examples of what we're exploring, and none of these are ready for prime time yet, and none of these are anything you'd get if you went down to Georgetown University in the emergency department and thought you had a concussion. Um, so they're, they're not standard of care, um, but they are still, they are being researched in the, in the, um, in the research realm. And some of these include biomarkers that I've already alluded to, where we are testing proteins in blood, in spit, in saliva, in sweat, and we're looking for certain proteins that dump into all three of those sources that would be indicative of a brain injury. So there's some work being done um, through uh, one of the companies is, well, Banyan Biomarkers is one of the big companies that you've probably read about that, that has the uh, most work being done with regard to this area. So serum biomarkers is one area. Another area is that we're looking at eye tracking machines. Um, these are devices that you can put on the eyes and you can pick up uh, problems with attention and concentration that can be indicative of concussion. We're also looking at some um, QEEG, quantitative um, EEG, brainwave activity machines, where you can slip a, a, a scalp has a few electrodes, you put a, a, like a cap on, and it will monitor the brainwave activity, and it's been shown to pick up uh, the diagnosis of concussion related to different brainwave activities. And then um, finally, there are some vestibular plates we're looking at where you actually stand on a plate and it can, it can pick up some idiosyncrasies in your balance that can be indicative of changes that have happened very deep in the brainstem uh, that are consistent with concussion. So those are just four examples of, of and there's a few more that, that aren't as far along, but we are striving to find diagnostics so that we can, and it probably won't be one test, like one blood test and there you go, but rather the combination of some of these objective markers that can help us diagnose mild TBI uh, on the battlefield. Okay, question two had to do with hemostatic agents in the trauma patient. And yes, there is a, a significant um, 
portfolio looking at hemostatic to stop bleeding in um, hemorrhagic shock in the polytrauma patient. Um, this is very critical for a patient that also has severe traumatic brain injury because restoration of blood pressure and oxygenation is very, very important when somebody is on the battlefield and has sustained a significant brain injury. Um, the thing to remember about the brain is that it doesn't store um, your energy like your muscles do. Your muscles can store energy and it can pull it out when it needs it. The brain can't do that. It needs a constant supply of glucose and oxygen as fuels to make the brain work. So um, hemostatic agents are being looked at through the combat casualty care program up at the Medical Research and Material Command up at Fort Detrick. Uh, um, the Army is the executive agency uh, for that program on behalf of the Department of Defense. And they are looking at certain uh, agents that will help control hemorrhagic shock and thus enhance the ability for us to adequately treat severe brain injury by restoring blood pressure and oxygenation. I forgot the third question. It had to do with neuroprotectants. Right. You had mentioned that progesterone was one of the newer agents um, being um, examined for neuroprotection, and uh, that is not available in theater. So what is recommended in theater? There is currently, I am not aware of any theater research. Uh, progesterone is in a research paradigm, so that's not considered standard of care either today. Um, I am not aware of any severe TBI neuroprotectants that are being delivered in theater under a research um, IRB um, protocol. So the work that's being done in progesterone is back stateside, um, specifically looking at progesterone. Um, so there are, currently there are no neuroprotectants um, as the standard of care for severe TBI that are being delivered in theater nor in, nor in the states. It's actually, if you look at some of the severe TBI literature, there's about 43 trials that have been conducted in the U.S. to include cyclosporin and excitatory amino acid and glutamate antagonists, and the list goes on. And all 43 of those trials have been ineffective in showing improvement in clinical outcome um, uh, when given in severe traumatic brain injury. So this is an area that we have not had good success with at all, um, but continuing to, to look at the different pathways and that's been one of the issues. That's why I brought it up earlier about people trying to um, uh, thwart many cascades with one, one item, one molecule, one chemical, as opposed to thwarting each of the different cascades that are occurring after severe brain injury. Thank you. Well, we're almost out of time, Ms. Helmick. Um, if you would like to give um, a few closing remarks, that would be great. Okay. I, yeah, I guess I, from a personal standpoint, being in the TBI uh, uh, field since uh, the early 90s, it's so exciting to see both the resources being put into this field and the opportunities for advancement. Um, one of the reasons, again, just a personal note, that, that I chose to go into the TBI field is because there was so much opportunity from, uh, I worked in an emergency department in an ICU setting, and, and when somebody came in so critically ill, and then perhaps three months later from their rehab center, they walked into you and said, hey, how you doing? They don't remember you by that point because you took care of them when they didn't have memory. Um, but seeing the, the, um, the positive outcomes 
that can happen from critical injury is really what uh, what drives us all to help, um, and not just critical injury, the, the concussed patient as well who struggles with cognitive impairments. The brain is such a unique organ um, that we will probably always be mesmerized by and never have fully the answers, but it's very challenging to try to understand and then create opportunities to enhance recovery because it, these, these injuries are so significant many times and can affect the whole complex um, uh, from, you know, the person themselves to their families to their work life and their spiritual life and in all realms. So I'm excited that the department has uh, invested so much time, energy, commitment, and resources to unlocking a lot of the uh, hidden mysteries related to traumatic brain injury. Um, very hopeful for the future for this particular patient population. We have much work to do. Time's not on our side, and we'll continue to, to get at it. Well, thank you so much, ma'am. Um, again, we'd like to thank Ms. Kathy Helmick um, for speaking with us today and providing us with such great information on um, what DOD is doing to work um, with TBI. Um, Ms. Helmick, if it's okay with you, if there are any um, additional questions that anyone have, I will forward those to um, Ms. Evans, who I've been working with, and you can um, answer those as needed or necessary. And I'd like to thank everyone um, for joining us on the call, and this ends our roundtable.